Pray with me. Holy God, right now we ask that you would move us beyond complacency of mind and heart, that you would move us beyond familiar and rote words and thoughts, and that you would open to us truths of your word. And in that, free us from our personal agendas, liberate us from our usual and prevailing assumptions and expectations, clear the cobwebs from our hearts and our ears, penetrate the corners of our minds with your living word, prepare us to be changed, stir us with your spirit, we know that you can, we pray that you will, we wait in eager anticipation. In the name of Jesus, amen. Headhunters, headhunters, there were this kind, and there are this kind. And thankfully, there may not be any of the former around still, but there are plenty of the latter around still, uh, especially in certain fields. And the work of headhunters today is to find employees for companies, yes, to fill positions for organizations, to get prospective employees to sign on the dotted line, and to commit themselves to that organization or company or community, often enticing them with various benefits of different sorts. Some of you have worked in human resources and have been on the recruiting side of that activity. Others of you have been approached at times in your life by headhunters, recruiters, uh, looking to uh, gather employees, secure employees for company X. Uh, telling you or other people what a great company that is, uh, how great they are to work for, how enjoyable about uh, opportunities for advancement and learning, top-notch benefits, and all of that. For many years, uh, the U.S. Army recruited young people with the slogan, Be All You Can Be. You, anyone remember that one? Be All You Can Be. The U.S. Navy invites people to accelerate your life like that. Many years ago, the Navy recruited young men with the words, be someone special. And then it's not just a job and it's, a, it's an adventure. I remember that one. And then right after that, live the adventure. And the military has always uh, promoted sort of see the world with us. Good stuff. Maya and Karen's uh, two oldest kids are in college. Number three is heading off to college in the fall, and uh, so we get a lot of mail. We've gotten a lot of mail over the last few years from universities uh, telling us how great their campuses are, about their special communities, about all the clubs and extracurriculars, their super dorms, world-class dining facilities, uh, intramural sports, and occasionally uh, great academic environment, uh, teacher-student ratios, uh, opportunities for research, things like that. But those always seem to come after all of these other pictures of smiley, happy students in the fitness center. Join our university. In contrast, 
there was Jesus. Listen to what he said and how he went about recruiting or inviting uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. Listen closely. This is the word of God. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do crowds say I am? They, the disciples, his closest disciples, replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, that Old Testament prophet who never died. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Peter's first to answer, quick, quick draw. God's Messiah or God's Christ. Jesus strictly warned them, at least for now, just for now, not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man, his favorite way of referring to himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple or my student or my follower or my apprentice, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self? Again, then Jesus said, verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to sign up, join on, sign on the dotted line, join my community, must deny themselves and take up their cross daily, which Jesus' disciples certainly had no idea what he was talking about at that point, and they will only understand later in retrospect. And follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So headhunters have their techniques and their strategies and their ways of presenting or inviting or enticing, as it may be. The military uh, recruits in their ways and with their words to appeal to young men and women to join the service. Colleges and universities have their many, many ways to lure and entice and publicize and invite and try to secure the students that they want. And then there's Jesus. And then there was Jesus and his very unorthodox approach of inviting people, but not begging, and being very clear and upfront about what he was asking, the sort of person, heart, mind, spirit, and character he was looking for, and that he intended to develop or nurture in a person. Whoever wants to be my disciple must, de must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life is gonna lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And how often do we hear that message from churches, from the church, in churches, in the church, in this church? A person is more likely to hear from churches or in churches things like this explicitly or indirectly. Come be a part of our church We'd love for you to be a part of it. We've got this ministry and that ministry that will bless you. We do this and we do that, and you will find great joy and delight in that. Uh, this will serve you. This will meet your need. This will make you happy. This will sort of 
hit a home run for you in your life. And sometimes, and in some ways, uh, and for some things, those messages are not only fine and good, they're even true and appropriate, absolutely. Churches should be communities or collectives of people where people are blessed and loved and cared for and forgiven and served and allowed to heal and uh, welcomed into the mercy of God, absolutely, absolutely. But such, mes such messages, if they're meant as a means of recruiting, can also lead one out onto thin ice to an understanding or a place in which church becomes about having a good experience, about being inspired, about being entertained like a good restaurant or club. And it's, there's just a very fine line. There's a very fine line. And this may be a particular danger in the realm of youth ministry. Yeah, youth ministry which for decades has often been built around games and entertainment and pizza, and eventually, when those winter weekends come along or summer comes along, uh, into world-class camps that are loaded with paintball wars and water skiing and high ropes adventures and quarter-mile-long zip lines, which are a ton of fun, and pizza. Always, always pizza. Like, you can't, do, you can't have a youth ministry without pizza. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Let's all say that together. There's nothing wrong with that. Until or unless those things become the main thing or come to be understood as a central element of Christianity or worse, the gospel and the kingdom of God. As if fun and games is what it's all about and it's as if seeking the next high experience of fun and games is what, is what life is about. It's not. In contrast, again, there's Jesus who said in Luke 9 that if you want you or anyone else to learn from me, apprentice with me, become like me, then it's you or that person, you or that person will need to learn self-denial. Not dodgeball or horseshoes or picnics or pizza, which all of which I like, right? I mean, I love that stuff, right? I mean, it's just like... You're out. Sorry, Edith. I know you're new here. You and Terry are kind of new in the community. You're out. <laughs> Got to catch those. Remember that the 12 were very much in a learning, growing, coming to understand, trying to understand Jesus at this point. Uh, Jesus, uh, it's still early. Uh, though we're in chapter nine of just a 24-chapter gospel story, Jesus' disciples are still learning, figuring out, trying to figure out Jesus. Dallas Fuller says a disciple is someone who is with Jesus by choice and by grace and who is actively, intentionally, and continually learning. Yes, it's a present participle. To do what Jesus would do if Jesus was in that person's shoes, it's a process, it's a journey, it's happening, it's continual. And Jesus is on this sort of mini retreat with his disciples now. Sort of he gets away, not just alone, but a private space with them for some deep reflection. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophet from, prophets from long ago has come back to life. But what about you, Jesus says to the twelve? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And so that question comes to you and me as well today. Who do you, who do I 
say that Jesus is, and our response to that is significant. How they answer the question, how we answer the question, really does matter. Is Jesus Messiah? Is he son of God? Is he son of man? Is he the Christ? Is he savior? Is he master? Is he rabbi? Is he Lord? How we answer that question matters because it has implications. We are saying in our affirmations that we take Jesus seriously. We take him at his word. We understand him to know what he was talking about. And we trust him, and we trust him. And this was Jesus' reply that we presumably not only trust him, but trust that he knows what he's talking about, that he's intentional about that, that he knows the way things operate and things work. He knows our lives. He knows God better than anyone else ever has. And this is what he says. The road ahead for me is going to be tough. I will suffer much. I will be rejected by all sorts of people in positions of authority and power. In fact, they will kill me. Death awaits me. And Jesus also said, of course, he will rise on the third day, and the disciples have no concept even of his being killed, much less him coming back to life on the third day. Again, they'll get that later, but for now, it's completely unimaginable and inconceivable to his apprentices at this point. But none of that, the other stuff that he said before that, is on their radar either. It's not what they had signed up for, along the Sea of Galilee, or what they thought they were continuing to sign up for and get deeper into. Deny ourselves, take up a cross, go your way. And yet Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, because they're in this process still, of, I got one foot in and one foot still out, they're getting there. Whoever wants to apprentice with me, learn from me, become like me, be my student, must deny themselves. And again, this doesn't sound like church. Doesn't sound like the modern church or the typical American Christian experience. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And if I asked uh, this morning, who wants to save their life? Bam, all of our hands would go up. Who wants to save their life? Let's do it. Well, and as much as it's up to me or I have a role in that, yeah, sure, of course, me. We want to keep our lives. We want our lives to be safe and secure and secured for the future. But Jesus says that the person whose primary focus is saving or preserving or keeping their life, their own life, and we might add for themselves, will actually somehow lose it, miss out on it, not have it, not get it, not have it now, not have it in the future, not fully experience it. And we can imagine a person who is so committed to preserving, another way of sort of defining that word, so committed or so obsessed with protecting their own life, preserving their own life, living long and healthy, that they sequester themselves from other people or situations from which they, or in which they might catch a disease or get sick or die prematurely or have less of a life, get hurt. And so they sequester, protect, keep themselves safe, limit, put boundaries on, parameters on how I'm going to live my life for me. And that might be a little of what Jesus means when he says whoever wants to save their life will actually lose it. But Jesus' greater focus is the second line of that sentence or the second part of that sentence. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life 
for my sake or in me, will save it. Whoever lets go of, surrenders, hands over, relinquishes their life for me or for my purposes, giving over to my control and trusting me with it, will, Jesus says in no uncertain terms, save it. That's a paradox. That's the par- I think it's the chief paradox of Jesus. It is entrusting and relinquishing and handing over our lives, doing the, the unthinkable, that our lives are really rescued and given purpose in this life and kept safe for the life to come. This is the paradox of Jesus, a very difficult paradox. And it's the paradox that Jesus requires, the asks of people to trust him, me, you, with our lives. And in some ways, that's the hardest thing that he could ask. It's scary. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. It's, I'm, that's scary. You want me to give you my life when I'm all about protecting and saving and keeping and preserving and accelerating, if you will, my life. I grew up in a world that subtly and not so subtly messaged, get whatever you can. And Jesus is saying not so subtly at all, for his sake, every day, exactly the opposite. And his promise is that in doing so, you will have everything that matters. It takes a lot of faith to believe and really live in this way. I mean, to really sort of trust that Jesus knew what he was talking, to trust him and to live in his way. Remember, to believe is to live as if something's true. To believe is not to sign a statement of faith, check a box. To believe is to live as if something is really true. When we invite people to do our series of gatherings that serve as an orientation to the church and which help new people do a deeper dive into the church, get to know some people, what we're about, et cetera, et cetera, we call it, used to call it Discover First Press, and now we call it Discover Waypoint. When we invite and sort of have an announcement about that and say, come do Discover Waypoint with us. It's a kind of path to membership for those who are interested in official membership. Our primary focus, honestly, during those gatherings isn't, is not. Whoever wants to be a part of our little collective, deny yourself. (laughs) Take up your cross daily and follow him with us. Deny yourself, lose yourself, relinquish it. Come on, lose yourself. Like that's not the subtitle of Discover Waypoint, (laughs) the tagline. Give yourself up, surrender, relinquish. Welcome and have a donut, however, is our normal sort of, <laughs> right? Discover Waypoint, come on, we'll eat donuts together, it'll be awesome. Then deny what's, what's that? Then deny, then, then deny yourself after a donut, or 20. And while we're not so forward and even demanding, Jesus was. Over and over and over, multiple times, in, in a, actually in a, a variety of different ways in the Gospels. Jesus says this and this sort of thing. 
Of course, when Jesus said to deny himself, when Jesus called those who would follow him to deny themselves, when Jesus issued his summons to those who would be his disciples and apprentices to deny himself, he did not mean, and I wish I'd had time to put this up on the screen, so listen carefully. He did not mean to deny one exists. He did not mean to deny that one has inherent value, immeasurable worth as one made in the image of God. He did not mean deny that one is loved as we sang in that third song. Starting with the fact that one is God's beloved. He did not mean to deny that. He did not mean to deny one's own needs. He did not mean denying self-care. He did not mean denying health care. He did not mean denying justice. He did not mean denying a healthy living environment and healthy relationships. He did not mean denying the right to save for the future. He did not mean denying oneself every or any particular comfort or even pleasure. Rather, Jesus did mean, pretend like it's up on the screen, denying one's right to have one's world revolve around oneself, denying one's right to sit on the throne that rightly belongs to Jesus, denying one's right to think of oneself as more important than others, denying one's right to primarily be served rather than to serve in this life. He did mean Denying one's right to spend one's time however one wants. He did mean denying oneself the first place in line. And think of all the lines in your life. He did mean denying oneself limelight. He did mean giving up the right to take or to get revenge. He did mean giving up the right to hate one's enemies. He did mean giving up the right to love only the people that one wants to love. He did mean giving up the right to spend our money primarily on ourselves. Look it up, Sermon on the Mount. He did mean thinking of oneself less. Not thinking less of oneself, but thinking of oneself less. And no church has ever led with anything like this on their website. Or at least no church website that I've seen. And maybe not anything like this on their website at all, much less on splash page. Let's all deny ourselves together. <laughs> it doesn't happen in recruiting because it's so hard. But that doesn't mean that all of this isn't also good and right and true. Several things are worth noting, for me at least. First, it's a journey. No one gets to this place of self-denial overnight. Second, related to it, no one actually gets to this place ever. At least this side of heaven. No one, not the Apostle Paul, not Mother Teresa, or anyone else ever actually becomes a fully self-denying person. It's so against our nature. Nevertheless, to such we are still called by Jesus. Third, God is always ready to help us on this journey. That is God's grace. God's grace, or grace means God's action helping us in ways and places where we cannot help ourselves or do it ourselves. God is always ready to help us on this journey. Fourth, Jesus has given us an example, a model, a template, a path of self-denial and what self-denial looks like by his own life, in his own life. You remember Paul's words in the second chapter of the letter to the Philippians. Your attitude should be, or in the modern translation, have the following mindset. Have a mindset like Jesus. 
Your attitude should be like that of Jesus, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. He denied himself. Jesus has given us an example, a model, a template for this path in and with his own life. Fourth, fifth, we can train for it. There are ways to train for self-denial. Fasting's uh, one of them that's often practiced during Lent. We're not gonna be talking about that, but again, I forgot my little Richard Foster book. If you want a Richard Foster book, there's a chapter, I'll give you one today before you leave. There's a great chapter on fasting that any person would be a great primer just before you think about it and before you get, but fasting, denying oneself an appetite and there are different kinds of appetites. There are the appetites of our bodies, our stomachs, our eyes. But intentionally denying oneself in little steps, a meal at a time, or a day at a time, or several days at a time, as you grow in that practice or discipline or training in self-denial. In his uh, little book, The Cost of Discipleship, Little But Thick, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, if there's no element... Uh, in his chapter on fasting. If there's no element of asceticism in a person's life, they will find it difficult to train for discipleship with Jesus. If there's no element of asceticism or self-denial in one's life, then they will find it hard to train for discipleship with Jesus. Uh, fasting is one way, often practiced during Lent. And there are lots of little ways. Every time someone on, uh, comes onto the highway and wants to merge, Gladly tap your brakes and let them merge every time. Doesn't matter what kind of car it is, what kind of person's driving, how crazy, how busy, how in a hurry you are. Select one of your appetites. Deny yourself in just a small way until you can deny yourself in a larger way and practice in that way self-denial. Let other people have the last word. Don't try to be the hero of every story. I often find myself doing that. Meditate on Paul's words, again, in second chapter of Philippians, right before what we read quoted a moment ago, where Paul said, consider others more important than yourself. If you practice that as a spirit, if you read those words every morning, not that you're not important, valued, loved, good, beloved of God, but consider others better than yourselves. And in that way, train for self-denial. Next, it needs to be acknowledged that though self-denial is hard and it doesn't necessarily seem appealing, there is good news or great news of God's kingdom throughout this call of Jesus that should be heard, and this is what I mean. Self-denial can foster within a person humility. It can. Humility, which functions in some ways as the most important and effective of virtues and the most effective antidote to the great sin of pride. So self-denial can help foster within a person humility. Self-denial can also produce in a person's soul freedom as the person is no longer enslaved by the need to be first and the desire to get what they want for oneself or having to be either the hero or the first and most important beneficiary of every conversation and situation. There is freedom in that. Indeed. Third, self-denial can actually produce joy. 
as a person comes to delight in seeing others blessed. Remember Paul. Grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And there can be joy in self-denial as we learn that. For self-denial, in other words, a commitment to practice or the practice of denying oneself, has the potential to transform one's character. A little bit at a time, decisions lead to behavior. Behavior leads to habit. Habit leads to character. It's just the way it goes. So self-denial is, can be, often is a part of shaping your character and mine, our character. It can be a plus. Fifth, self-denial, denial of oneself, opens doors that heretofore may have been closed in the sense that a person more focused on themselves and their own well-being and benefit may not be open to certain vocations or jobs or tasks or opportunities or, in the Navy, adventures. When we're solely focused on ourselves and our life and the promotion and the acceleration of ourselves, we miss out on a whole bunch of other possibilities that God may have for us, just waiting to be seen. Moreover, the self-denying person is, I think, more likely to become the kind of person who sincerely invests in her community and makes her community a better place. The self-denying and other interested person is arguably the sort of person who is most wanted and needed as a friend, as a neighbor, as a coworker, as a boss, as an employee, as a spouse, as a leader. Think about that when, uh, you're, when, when you were or are looking for an employee or an employer or a friend or a neighbor or a spouse. Are you looking for someone who's narcissistic? Are you looking for a dictator? No. But imagine bumping into someone who's all about, it's not about me. Parents who deny themselves, take up their crosses, lose their lives in Jesus for his sake and follow him, I think are more likely to experience God's abundance in parenting. The person who consciously denies herself, relinquishes her life for Jesus' sake and follows him is more likely, I think, to become love because she is choosing the good of another. And you remember the weeks and weeks we talked about love. To love is not to have an emotional reaction to someone, but to wish or to will or to be committed to the good of another. To love. And that person slowly becomes love. And whereas God is love, the person who authentically and in healthy ways denies herself comes to see God more clearly. God comes into sharper focus, as the disciple John wrote in his first letter. Whoever lives in love lives in God because God is love. And so strangely, the denial of self when done in appropriate and healthy ways will bring, I believe, bring God into sharper focus. Do you want to see God? Okay, I could go on and on, and I've gone on a little long, as usual. Uh, I want to wrap up with two quotes that kind of connect us with historic and ancient Christianity. Two quotes from two Christian mystics in the 1300s and the 1600s. going to put them on the screen. 
A guy named Meister Eckhart wrote, Self-love is the root and cause of all evil. It snatches away all that is good and all that is perfect. Therefore, if the soul is to know God, it must also forget itself and lose itself. For as long as it sees itself, it will not see and know God. But when it loses itself for God's sake and leaves all things, then it finds itself again in God because God dawns upon it. And only then does the soul know itself and all things in God. And then in the 1600s, uh, a mystic woman named Jean Guillon, she wrote, it is only by a total death to self we can be lost in God. Okay. In the spirit of last Sunday's uh, confession, let's bow in prayer together. God, we confess as a body and for the church universal and for our little community here and each of us ourselves, we, I confess that the whole idea of denying oneself is unnatural. It doesn't come naturally. It's not my first reaction. It's not appealing. It's not what I in my flesh and desires and appetites necessarily want ever. We are human. We confess we've gone the opposite way even when you've clearly called too many times. I confess that we confess that. We wanna be truthful and honest with you about that. And yet this morning we hear your voice. We regard you as one who not only knows truth and speaks truth, but is truth. Help us by your grace into the way of Jesus, the way that he lived, the way that he went, the way that he was, and the way that he called us and all people. Help us to trust you and in Jesus' way, find what you promised, a life that by your grace and by your power is saved and rescued, is abundant and eternal. And may in all of this, you be greatly glorified. Father, Son, and Spirit, amen. <laughs>